hate it when bad things happen to good people. When it came time to get the job done, nothing was going to stand between me and getting the job done. But I will get the truth one way or the other. That's the voice of former Raleigh, North Carolina homicide detective Chris Morgan, now retired. He led investigations into more than 100 murder cases during his long career, and in the years since he left the force, has taught detective work for in-service law enforcement trainings. Morgan is tough, tenacious, clever, caustic at times, and unafraid. On the job, he pushed buttons in ways few do, in ways some people didn't like. Political correctness in police work is a killer. It will kill the job that you do. In his day, if you were looking for a murder investigator whose heart was heavy with the tragedies he'd seen and solved, who searched his mind and his soul for solutions, well, Morgan was your man. When I contacted him, it wasn't long before he quoted from the opening lines of a book called Practical Homicide Investigations by one-time NYPD Lieutenant Commander Vernon Gebberth. As I'm looking at it right now on my bookshelf right next to my desk in my home office, it says, as homicide investigators, we work for God. We work for God because it's our job to find justice for someone who can no longer protect or take care of themselves, who will never be able to protect or take care of themselves. This is Pursuit, the podcast, Episode 7, exploring the murder of Faith Hedgepeth at age 19 in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. A University of North Carolina student whose life was savagely stolen in September 2012, a case still without arrests or answers. In Episode 6, with the help of two statement analyst experts, I went over the 911 call in Faith's case with a fine-tooth comb. Later in this episode, we'll turn to the mysterious note scrawled and left by Faith's body. But first, Chris Morgan weighs in now, from the homicide cop's perspective, on that emergency call. He punctuates what you've heard previously by just cutting to the chase. So you've had a heck of a lot of experience hearing 911 calls. Oh, yeah. 11.01 a.m. 44 second September 7, 2012. The call was made by Faith's then-roommate, Karina Rosario, who returned to their apartment on September 7th to face a tragic, terrible scene. Karina was with a friend, though she never mentioned her or outwardly asked her to help in the crisis. I, um, I just walked into my apartment and my friend was just like, unconscious. You've heard a lot of the call already. I'm going to keep it to a bare minimum in this episode without any more of the graphic, truly hard to hear parts. Now here's Chris Morgan again, first hearkening back to some good advice he got when he was a young man. My crazy uncle in Four Oaks, God bless his heart and rest his soul, but he always told me, he said, boy, um, always listen to people understand what they're saying, and then sit back and say, does this make sense? And he said, 
if you can't answer that question right away in the affirmative, then they're usually telling you a lie. He said, the truth makes sense. And none of that call makes sense to me. Okay, what's your address, ma'am? I live at Hawkins after you. I don't understand about that roommate girl at all. Just the hair on the back of my neck. You know, I, I, you get that funny feeling like, wait, something's not right here. And then you start piecing things together, and it just doesn't add up. What is your name? The whole thing's right. I, um, I just like to say my name. It's not genuine at all. Uh, you know, from the word go. I mean, the very start of the call, hi. Hi. Right. Who says that? People who are in genuine distress, that the first thing out of their mouth is help. Get the police right over here. Send the ambulance. It's not high. And, and I mean, it, it's subtle, but it, it's just enough to put up a flag for me. No request for help for the victim. There's something in my room that, like, was not here before. Okay, listen to me. someone that came in here. Then you go to extraneous information. The way she keeps going back time after time to something's been, things have been moved in here. Something's been, somebody's been in here. Well, obviously somebody's been in there. Mm -hmm. People making 911 calls just haven't found somebody that's extremely close to them. Uh, dead, uh, you know, uh, a victim of an apparent homicide, they they don't talk about that kind of stuff. What room is she in? She never says faith. She never once says faith. My roommate. I'm going to tell you how to help her, okay? Why isn't she helping? Why doesn't she help more? And she's the one who called 911. There's a lot of sobbing, and there's some. Uh, there's no genuine hysteria there, and I just—I'll be honest with you—I just don't buy. It. got a whole lot more checks on the guilty caller side than she does on the innocent caller side. That girl is, she's either covering for somebody or covering up for herself. And I don't know which one it is, but something ain't right there. It's important to note again that I've never seen, heard, or read that Karina Rosario has spoken publicly about this case made a plea for information that might lead to justice for Faith, her one-time roommate and close friend. I have lots of questions for her, as you can imagine. In the past, I've called and emailed her. More recently, I sent a note via UPS to the last known address I have for Karina, requesting an interview. It was delivered, but I never heard anything back. I can't find Karina on social media. There could be a number of reasons for her silence, her exceedingly low profile. Some might make sense, others just raise questions. 
Faith's father, Roland Hedgepeth, says he talked to Karina several times in the months after his daughter's murder seven years ago now. Eventually, she stopped talking to him, too. I've asked her, did she know what happened to Faith? Did she have any idea of who might have done this to Faith? I can't remember her ever making any kind of statement of who she thought might have done it. Roland says he never asked Karina directly if she was involved. She told him she wasn't. Well, she has, she has made that statement. What's that? Uh, in a telephone conversation that, uh, that she had nothing to do with Faith's murder. So she's assertively said that. It wasn't an answer, I think, to a question that I, that I asked her specifically. It was probably in reference to maybe what other people were saying. I just believe that Karina knows what happened, knows more about what happened than she's revealed. Okay, you say your friend is unconscious? He's unconscious. I just get the distinct feeling that it wasn't the first time that Karina had seen the crime scene. And the Chapel Hill police about Karina Rosario, they don't say much. On an ABC 2020 broadcast about the case a few years ago, Assistant Chief Salisa LeHue was asked about the 911 call. Whether or not, you know, she is giving us all of the information that she knows and or um, truthful information, you know, continues to be under investigation. Here's how it went when I talked to LeHue about Karina. Back to another issue, you said this to me before, you feel that uh, Karina Rosario ha could give you more or better information than you've been able to get to date. Is that accurate? So I continue to have a relationship with Karina. Um, she has been uh, cooperative with, I, I guess you could, cooperative It would be the correct word. So um, I often um, ask Karina about different events and as to what time they heard, what when they were heard. Um, I will stop short of saying any kind of further information in regards to that. Would you say Karina is under any kind of cloud of suspicion? Do you mean from the from, police from, department? From investigators? Or from... So again, we don't have, you know, I can't say, hey, this is, um, this is our suspect. So if I had that information, you know, I could clearly answer that question. Until we have that, that suspect, I... I would stop short of saying, hey, this person is a suspect in this case. I've also tried to speak to Marisol Rangel via Facebook and by phone. Marisol was the friend in the apartment with Karina Rosario during the 911 call. She too was a close friend of Faith's. Hi, it's Tom Gasparilla calling for Marisol Rangel. Uh, Marisol, if this is still your number. Um, you may know my name from my writing on the Faith Hedgepeth case. I'm working on a true crime podcast called Pursuit, and I would very much like to interview you for the podcast. Please give me a call or text me. Thanks very much. I received no response from Marisol. I have a feeling she may not want to answer the kinds of questions I want to ask. Now to one of the most mysterious aspects of this murder case the note left at the scene. First, that it's there at all. It is incredibly unusual to find one by a body. 
except at times in suicide cases. And in Faith's case, in that 911 call, Karina never mentioned the note right in front of her, the note very near Faith's body, written on a partly crumpled food bag from a Chapel Hill restaurant. That morning back in 2012, as crime scene photos I've seen show, when you walked into Karina and Faith's apartment, there was a pile of clothes on the floor next to the couch in the living room, a vacuum cleaner, mini ironing board, and cords on the floor. On the kitchen counter, a collection of papers, a binder, and other items. If you look very closely, you'll see on the floor a yellow post-it note. It appears to be blank. So there's papers and post-it notes around, but the killer, or one of the people possibly there with the killer, decides to scrawl out a note on a used fast food bag. Is this because it's all the writer saw, or perhaps an attempt to make the note seem rushed and frenzied, when in fact, it doesn't seem frenzied at all? Line one, I'm not stupid. No contraction between the I and the M. Line two, bitch. Line three, jealous. Who was it written for? Why? Maybe it was meant to make no sense. Maybe to send investigators looking in one direction and not another. Yet it was also left within a few feet of Faith's body in a bloody, mindless, horrible scene. The note. It's time to talk to a document expert now a questioned documents analyst. Questioned document experts often probe wills, deeds, medical records, tax and insurance records, timesheets, contracts, election petitions, checks, signed letters, typed or handwritten, and anonymous notes, a note like the one left by Faith Hedgepeth's body after she was murdered. The question document profession is actually one of the oldest forensic sciences, um, to be honest. So it has a great deep history, probably over 100 years old. I went to Meredith DeCab Miller, now a consultant, but a professional who was trained, certified by, and worked for the FBI. These days, one of the things she does is travel globally retained to work projects in a program in the Department of Justice called ISITAP, International Criminal Investigation Training Assistance Program. They hire either government uh, forensic people or people like myself that have worked for the government at one time, but now we're in private practice. And so they kind of use it as, you know, an outreach program to help train other forensic entities with different governments across the world. I love going abroad and seeing what other laboratories are doing. Mm -hmm. And surprisingly, you might think like some of these laboratories are so far behind us, but some of them are quite, you know, quite advanced. After emailing Miller with a bit of background and asking her to examine the note in Faith's case, I caught up with her on the phone while she was on assignment in a faraway land. But before we get to Miller's analysis of the note in Faith's case, I think it's helpful to tell you about one of the biggest cases Meredith Miller worked on while with the FBI and the specific painstaking job she did, along with others, to help bring a mass murderer to justice. What you're hearing is one of those never-ending loops of music that 
plays at the gas pump where I just finished filling up. I'm gonna walk away a little bit now, get away from that music. Pumping gas as normal and mundane an activity as you can think of, really. But there was a time, a short period of time, in what's called the DMV, the District of Columbia, the Maryland suburbs in Northern Virginia, and stretching 90 miles south to Richmond, when stopping for gas was a risk, a life and death risk. Innocently standing or strolling to and from your car in broad daylight, you might get shot by a sniper. In fact, back in the fall of 2002, some gas stations shrouded the general area of the pumps with dark plastic sheeting so a shooter couldn't see exactly where people were, so he couldn't target them. That's how bad it got. Outside gas stations, outside a Home Depot, a Michael's craft store, a Ponderosa Steakhouse, Americana, and in all those places and more where the DC sniper did what he did, he and a young accomplice took these everyday trips for hundreds of thousands of people and randomly made them terrifying. The DC sniper case, a case, a trial, where Meredith Miller's work was crucial. It was a terrifying situation for thousands of people, gunmen in the neighborhood killing individuals in a methodical way. It happened again and again and again. Nightmares finally came to pass. An arrest came to an end. An arrest stop in western Maryland. Federal, state, and local authorities arrested D.C. snipers John Allen Muhammad and Lee Boyd Malvo. The whole time that we had them in custody, there was not one word spoken and no emotion displayed. I mean, just, just a blank stare. Not only was you know, the people at the FBI, we worked the evidence from the case, but just also I was, you know, a private person living in D.C. and Virginia and traveling to all these places all the time and having somebody just randomly, you know, picking people out of parking lots and shooting them, you know, was like a real fear for everybody. So they would have police checkpoints coming. I remember that too, getting trapped in some of those after there had been a shooting, like on the interstate. One of the many documents Meredith Miller and others examined for John Allen Muhammad's trial was a message from the killers. Outside that Ponderosa steakhouse, a letter was found tacked on a tree wrapped in plastic. It said, for you, Mr. Police, call me God. Do not release to the press. The letter demanded $10 million. It also said, accept our demands, which are non-negotiable. Your children are not safe anywhere at any time. You know, and they had basically been living out of their car. So everything from trash, you know, to receipts, to, you know, just garbage you would have if you were living in your car all came right. through the lab. And one of the documents that came in was like the driver's manual you get when you buy a car that's usually in your glove box, yeah. you know, that you never kind of look at. <laughs> so that came in and I was going through every single page of this manual, looking at it with light sources. And I remember seeing like indentations on one of the pages of the manual. And 
as I worked with the photographic unit, we were able to bring up those images and those indentations. And they were the same indentations, the same words that were that were used in one of the letters that the police had received, because I could see the exact same image in some of parts of the words that were used in the letter. So the call me God, I remember the call me God was part of the letter that they had written, and that part of the text was on that car manual, indented into the pages. We were able to kind of recover those images that had been that had been on the manual. I mean, you couldn't see them just with the naked eye. They were something we saw with um, alternate lighting sources, but we were able to recover those. And then that was the evidence that I presented at court like a year later or something. And after Miller presented that evidence in court under direct examination, she readied herself for the defense. The man questioning her in court was the accused, John Muhammad the suspected adult mastermind behind that run of death and domestic terror. He acted as his own attorney. So he actually was the one questioning me, like in the third person, about what I had recovered, you know? And it was, that was kind of strange because I'd never had that before. There's some type of personality where these people are, they think, I guess, they're really clever. And they know everything, and nobody else can help them except themselves. And so, and I think they kind of enjoy, you know, the spotlight a little bit. He's actually the person questioning me, you know, about the case. And, oh, yeah, it was, it was bizarre. I just remember one moment where he was asking me about the evidence, and I was I don't know if I was reading or I was showing or demonstrating, but I remember that call me God phrase was one of the things that had been developed from the manual. And so I had stated there was the phrase, the call me God phrase. And I remember he just went crazy Really? when I said that. And he approached the judge and he said, listen, you know, he had this huge like fit about me coming up and testifying about this. And I remember the judge had to call everyone, all the attorneys up to the bench and, you know, go through what exactly was going to be happening with me as a witness. And it's almost like I had caught him a little bit by surprise. He may not have been exactly knowing what I was going to say, because, you know, obviously he didn't, he hadn't had any access to me and I was presented as you know, part of the prosecution's case. And so he must have, I think he was shocked. Sure. Everybody remembers those words about the call me God phrase that he had put on those notes. And so once I said that, it was like pandemonium broke out. And I just remember everybody rushing up to the bench and he was like, so mad. Miller said what she had to say, demonstrated her expertise in question documents, in investigations, in testimony under unusual pressure, being challenged from a few feet away by a man who would soon be convicted of murder and eventually executed. Now back to Faith's case, the note in Faith's case, the utterance really on a fast food bag. Line one, I'm not stupid. Line two, bitch. Line three, jealous all caps. Here's Meredith Miller again. 
The first thing, you know, I tried to look at was basically, you know, if the writing appeared, like I said, the first thing I always look at is, you know, if the writing appears natural yes, or if it possibly could be, you know, distorted or disguised. And I think with this note, you definitely have some type of distortion going on. You know, I do think there is some element of disguise. I don't think the person's writing in their natural writing. Really? Uh, particularly. No, I, I'm not certain that they are with all the letter formations. It doesn't look exactly natural to me. What? But generally, if somebody's writing in a capital type, capital, all caps, basically, you know, this type of a anonymous note or letter, I mean, this is not their natural writing style, generally. That's something you see right away when you see it, right? Right. This is not going to be their normal kind of natural writing. No. So Miller suspects someone is trying to distort their writing. But one of the people there at the murder scene left his DNA in several places, a way to identify him. But the note right by Faith's body is likely distorted. Why? The same person whose biological material is on and around Faith's body and on a murder weapon is suddenly trying to hide their identity by disguising their handwriting? Just looking at the note, the other thing that kind of stood out to me is that all of the, um, the spelling is right. Spelling the word jealous is not really an easy word to spell necessarily. So it made me think it was possibly, you know, somebody that was somewhat educated that could spell that word. Can you discern or find any indicators of right hand, left hand, and or gender? No. Handedness is, you can't determine that from the writing. Um, especially a note that looks somewhat distorted or possibly disguised. There's no way to determine if it's left hand or right hand. Trying to determine the sex of the writer or, you know, the occupational status or those mm -hmm. types of things, generally you cannot discern from handwriting alone. Um, people like to make guesses, you know, based on the writing, if it's a male or a female, but generally there's no way to actually determine that, if it's male or female or age or any of those types of things. The words again over three lines, I'm not stupid, bitch, jealous. Then I was kind of caught up with the language itself. It seemed to me it would be like in somebody like in a, like that, the age group of the victim, you know, somewhat similar age group. Because I feel like that's how young adults would speak to each other. It seems very, yeah, very colloquial, I guess is the word. Like, it seems very much like it's like how the person would speak. And I also feel like it's kind of referring to something specific. So it's almost like it must have been some kind of incident that occurred that a handful of people would know about. And I feel like in that close circle of her friends, somebody would know what this incident was. There was some type of incident or conversation or something that happened. And this person is kind of retorting back to that. It's like there's a lot of like, like, uh, what do you want to say? Like a lot of hate there. 
vengeance or something. I mean, it's just, uh, yeah, he, I'm kind of surprised, like, they had the composure to kind of sit and even write something. Like somebody kind of, like, putting the final exclamation point on the on the crime. Like, you know, they've done this heinous crime, and then there's this also, like, and this, you know, bang. Like, here, take this, too. I've long wondered, and so does Meredith Miller, whether the assailant and the writer of the note are the same person. Well, this former detective said the very same thing. He said, the attack is fairly uncontrolled and the note is controlled. Yeah, it almost makes me think like maybe almost like two people were there, like somebody did the killing part and like somebody else maybe wrote the note. I mean, because it doesn't kind of go together, the like brutality of the of the crime with like then this kind of note. And speaking beyond what her training would allow, but based on her experience with documents and in life, Meredith Miller says there's something else about the note in its own way identifying. Just a, it's just a thought like how I feel like a girl would talk to another girl. Right. So to be clear, this is not part of your question documents no, uh, study. No, it's not part of my FBI training. It's just the language used reminds me of something a girl would say to another girl. What a girl would say to another girl. Let's hear again from Susan Constantine, a statement analyst you heard a lot from in episode six of Pursuit. But it sounds more like it's a female writing it to another female because the word jealous was in there. Jealous is not a word that you would typically here from a guy to a woman. It would be from a woman to a woman. Men are, of course, jealous all the time, jealous enough to kill. It happens again and again. It may have happened in Faith's case. But using the word jealous, admitting it's even crossed their mind, almost never happens. Now again, Chris Morgan, who's also thought a lot about that mystery note. He says he believes that note is a ruse. It's staging. That's what it's called. And it's done, I mean, the classic example is, you know, the uh, a victim gets shot by his spouse who then tries to put the, vic- the gun in the victim's hand. But the most common reason is to misdirect the police investigation. I'm not stupid, bitch. Jealous. Right. Now that's pointing them at somebody, or pointing the police to go investigate everybody that Faith has had a relationship with. Right, so it's like a roadmap. If it's real, it's like a roadmap to the people you need to talk to. If it were real, but it's not real. Once again, I don't believe this note was written by the offender. I believe this note was written by somebody else. And I believe this note isn't an attempt at staging the crime scene to misdirect the police. You want to know what my gut tells me? This is a gut impression. On everything I've looked at so far, I'd say there were three people there. Karina was there and two other males. Now, who those males were, I'm not 100% sure. But I believe she was there. That's Chris Morgan's instinct and experience talking, his assessment only minus any kind of certainty. 
But is it possible that Morgan and Meredith Miller's suggestions that multiple people may have been at the scene where Faith Hedgepeth was murdered are spot on? And then there's this coming in episode eight of Pursuit. A pocket dial from the phone of Faith Hedgepeth with a garbled message left on a close friend's voicemail on September 7th, 2012, the overnight that Faith died. It sounds unintelligible, but an audio engineer who has testified in murder cases has analyzed that call at length, and he thinks, and Faith's father agrees, that the call captures a vicious, distressed argument between Faith and two, maybe three other people, one of them a woman, that could be tied directly to her murder. That story in the next episode of Pursuit. Pursuit is available on most major podcast sites. If you like it, please rate, review, and subscribe. I appreciate your support. You can also find and listen to episodes on PursuitPodcast.com. If you have information or thoughts for me on the case, in writing or via an anonymous voice mailbox, go to the contact page on the website or reach out on social media. The number for Chapel Hill Police Crime Stoppers is also on PursuitPodcast.com. There is currently a potential $40,000 reward available in the Faith Hedgepeth murder investigation.